Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Now, our guest today is Lily Dahlberg, and as the research data analyst for the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists, Lily compiles, analyzes, and develops internal survey measures and data reports. Her findings inform all CHF programming, including events, the Art Business Accelerator, and digital learning programs. Now, the reason that Lily is with us here today is we're going to discuss the seminal report just released by the Clark Healings Fund, which is the report on the working artist. And for those of you that are looking for that report and would like to have it up while you're actually listening to this episode, you would go to clarkhealingsfund.org slash R-O-W-A. It's easy to remember R-O-W-A because it's report on the working artist, R-O-W-A. So again, the URL is clarkhealingsfund.org slash R-O-W-A. Now, you can get the report there. In the meantime, Lily and I, uh, who both work on the data science team, are going to talk a little bit about uh, what the nature of this report is, what we've uncovered, and what it's sort of like uh, to, to do data science uh, at this level. Uh, so, Lily, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Well, uh, Lily, uh, great. Talk to me a little bit about what's the nature of the data research we've done uh, and what it has been like for you. Yeah, so... We've put together something that, in my opinion, is quite revolutionary in the field, and for many reasons, but what sticks out to me is that we've not just said that moving the needle is possible, but we've proven through our own research and other compiled research that these learning initiatives and business training for working artists does move the needle and how it moves the needle. Well, let me back up a little bit. When we talk about moving the needle, I think a lot of people need some context of what is this report in the first place? What is it really about? So the report on the working artist is a seminal report on the working artist, as is clear, but specifically, what are the the needs and demands of the working artist? What are their contributions to the larger culture? And more importantly, what kinds of impacts can be made by creating programs that champion the cause of the working artist? So for instance, uh, the Clark Healings Fund puts together uh, intensive educational programs in business and entrepreneurship for working artists with the goal that working artists can thrive uh, financially, culturally, economically, etc. And so some of what the report uncovers is the effectiveness of those programs. And then, of course, it goes on to show some gaps that are uh, that still remain in the industry. Now, one thing, Lily, that I like about this report is you've done an incredible amount of work research-wise, sussing out uh, all of the extant published data already done by other organizations on the working artists. Uh, how challenging was that? Was it, <laughs> was it a bit of a struggle? Yeah, you could say that. It was definitely a bit of a struggle because we've got a lot of information out there, you know, from many different sources, many reputable organizations, nonprofits, our business education programs. But what we don't have is we have so little information on what artists need to drive success and what actually, you know, changes kind of the landscape of what's going on in our business. Um, the most difficult part, I think, was really just compiling everything that was out there because there's a lot out there and some of it's not even published anymore. Some of it is, you know, from 
an old PDF from an organization that no longer exists, but we still wanted to include every single piece of data we could find. So putting it all together and making sense of it was definitely a challenge. So, you know, the, the first uh, approach to the report was to synthesize the data that already exists, to situate the report squarely within um, the industry of the working artist. And so you literally collated all of the research that you could find anywhere published in any format that had already been done as not the only uh, research method, but obviously the first step. And, you know, one of the things that stood out for me in the findings uh, from that effort is the level at which the working artist contributes to economic development at pretty much every level, national, regional, municipal, uh, right down to the district. And particularly impressive to me uh, was uh, it doesn't matter whether it's an urban situation or a rural one, that uh, the commercial arts generate enormous amounts of money for urban economies, uh, but also the rural arts uh, bring in money from out-of-state sources. And so uh, supporting the arts in any environment seems to have a direct economic impact on the not only the cultural climate, but the economic climate uh, of, the, of the area. Uh, what, what stood out for you uh, in regard to the, the collation of, of other people's research? Yeah, so I mean, this was huge. What we found was that there wasn't much research or, or much literature out there on working artists' contributions to the economy, but what was out there points to huge influence in, on the micro, macro, and mezzo levels. So I think that's really huge to know that working artists, backed by the data science, make an impact, not just in their local communities and the economy of a local community, but on a larger scale for, you know, the entirety of the United States. You know, uh, the other aspect of the research, Lily, that the team worked on, the data science team at, at the Clark Healings Fund, is direct research. Um, so it's not enough to obviously just collate what else is out there, but there was a need to actually conduct reproducible research with direct access to different cohorts of working artists in different contexts over a long period of time. Um, and one of those, one of those results that sort of substantiates what we found in collating the data uh, about the economic impact is that artists create jobs. Uh, at least 25% have hired at least one person to help them operate their business. And we find that as artists grow, they do things from hire people to work in the studio uh, to uh, hire other professionals in the local economy, ranging you know anywhere from intellectual property attorneys to uh, you know business coaches uh, to marketing professionals on down the line. Let me ask you this: um, What did you find interesting about doing the actual hands-on research that wasn't just collation? Well, a lot of things stood out for me. I think the most interesting thing that we developed throughout our research process was a trajectory of change. So basically with all the data that we've collated and more specifically with the data that we have done in-house at the Clark Hewlings Fund through the Art Business Accelerator Program and our events, we really came up with kind of a pattern that we can follow for any type of research in the future. And that is that attitudes change behavior, behavior produces business results and business results lead to increased income or revenue. Yeah, I find that interesting because, um, so let's say that again. 
changes in attitude lead to changes in behavior. Changes in behavior lead to direct business results and business result changes lead to changes in, in income or revenue. So in one sense, we're saying that if you go to work on the attitudes, you can ultimately change the financial outcome for somebody at the end of the scale. Uh, you can get from one end to the other. But the other thing that seems to come out of that is that there's a template there, not just for doing this type of research. What should we measure? You know, cha measure changes in attitude, changes in behavior, changes in results, changes in income and revenue. But how should educational programs for artists or programs that, that teach artists to be effective entrepreneurs, how should those be structured? Uh, because when you're doing that curriculum design, um, you can also take this into account. Hey, you know, we want to go to work if initially, not just on teaching skills, but initially on changing some of the attitudes that are prevalent um, so that people can learn a different set of behaviors so they can achieve the business results and so on. So I do think uh, that is a, a, a seminal piece. Lily, what, what were the most striking results? Um, so when you looked at a variety of programs across, uh, I think it was two, two and a half years, you can tell us. Um, and uh, these programs were both uh, virtual and in-person with different cohorts of learners over the course of those time periods. When you looked at those and synthesized the consistent results that we were getting, what are some of the numbers or some of the results that you saw that were the most striking? Yeah. I mean, throughout this process, we've come to a lot of findings that I found to be really striking, really impressive. And one of the main things that I think that, you know, we should take away from this is that business education moves the needle for artists. It helps them make more income. It helps them develop a more robust network, which allows them to increase their sales. But some of the numbers, I mean, we saw a 75% increase in the number of our business accelerator fellows who were able to increase their involvement in marketing channels. Um, they were actually able to increase their income 100%. So every single participant in our program increased the number of contacts in their audience. And that was a big thing that we saw too. So besides income, we saw that when artists have a peer network, they're more likely to achieve business results. So just to restate that finding, really interesting finding that, it, you know, it suggests that business training for artists creates uh, the conditions for prosperity, but also not just the conditions, but but artists must be intensely motivated because anyone can create the conditions for prosperity. But when you deliver this kind of training, it seems like the artists are picking up the ball and running the rest of the way and actually creating the outcome. So when you do this kind of training, you, you, you're committing to these outcomes. And so 75% of artists who receive that kind of intensive business education increase their, their total income from producing art. Um, and I think uh, we got another number out of it that, you know, 67% of artists who get concentrated business education sell more art. Um, and so it, some some increase their income. Why is the number higher uh, than the number that sell more? Uh, a certain number sells more. A certain number does other strategies ranging from changing their profit margins and pricing structure uh, to their sales strategy. And so that results in a greater total amount of income, even if you didn't sell more pieces, for instance. And so it's a very nuanced uh, set of findings that has uh, these bottom line uh, business results. And yet, uh, Lily, uh, would, would you agree that the finding is consistent across uh, multiple cohorts? Or did you find that, uh, what did you find? Yeah, it's 
pretty consistent across the different cohorts that we've analyzed as Clark Ewing's fund. But what I find interesting, too, is that even at our art business conferences, we're seeing the same sorts of statistics. Obviously, in a two to three day boost on the ground learning event, we're not going to see an increased income right away. But we are seeing that change in attitude that leads to a change in behavior. Many of the artists who attend those sessions report a willingness to spend a significant amount more of their time on their art business, which we know is an indicator of huge success and ability to increase income in the future. Um, I think we had a 25% increase in that percentage of artists who were willing to spend 40% or more of their time on the business aspect of their art business. So you get a you get a change even on the ground when you're with a group of a cohort for a short period of time, uh, you reproduce the pattern. You get a change. Uh, you get a measurable change in the attitudes that that involve the behaviors. But I think we also measured um, the intent to execute the behaviors. Uh, so I mean, you can actually measure whether the behaviors are, are being executed and the resultant uh, financial change with a longer term relationship. But even with the short term relationship, we we see people saying, for instance, that hey, you know, attitude. Here's a here's a change in the context um, that um, the clarity on actions needed to achieve my art career objectives increased, and we saw a forty percent increase in those on the ground, uh, with just in three days of training. Uh, but then also the amount of time I am committed to, uh, developing my art business. We saw a 50% increase to get half of the people in a room to do anything <laughs> in, in three days to, to, to commit to uh, a change is, is enormous. Uh, but then we can actually measure, uh, the cohorts long-term. And of course, I know this is not the, this is the first report of this kind, uh, to come out, um, on behalf of the working artists, uh, nothing like this really exists, but, uh, but it won't be the last. The, the Clark Healings Fund intends to continue this data initiative and put out more. Um, and so we will be able to measure cohorts, sort of stay with them and measure them longer term and, and get additional data points. Uh, but a couple of things stand out for me. One is that the, the artists are really the antidote in some ways to the uncertain economy that we currently face. I mean, you turn on the news right now and are we going into a recession? We don't know. We do know that there's tariffs. We do know that we're in a trade war. We do know that farmers are uncomfortable. We do know that um, investments are up one week. We have a, a bull market one week and then the next week it's a bear market and so on. Uh, and so in the face of all of that, um, it seems to be that if we invest in the entrepreneurship of working artists, that we have an opportunity to do something stable for an economy that we know works, uh, that can actually be evaluated on the basis of tangible benefits, bottom line outcomes, not just uh, sort of number of people served and, and dollars spent. Now, Lily, what was your finding when you did, when you sort of surveyed um, the collated research of other organizations? Did they measure bottom line outcomes like this or that whole chain from changes of attitude all the way to changes in, in revenue? Or did you find that the bulk of the research was more superficial? I'm glad you asked that because that was one of the huge findings of our report was that most of the data out there does not measure bottom line outcomes, which is kind of funny, right? Because you need to know those things in order to, you know, kind of develop new programs and create best practices and to support artists so that they can support the economy. I mean, I think what was what really struck me was that many organizations had information on their websites about the different types of programs they ran, 
testimonials and quotes from artists on what they need, but there was no real evidence of what these programs were able to do for the artists. There were no business results, no income results. So in order to, to really make a more robust argument for, you know, why artists are kind of the antidote right now to an uncertain economy, they're investing in their art business, they're hiring people, they're boosting the economy in so many ways. You really need to have that piece, right? To show what, what are the tangible outcomes? So that's really what we tried to do here. Um, and with our programming, we were able to come to some really amazing conclusions that show, you know, when you support artists, you're supporting not only their art business, but they're reinvesting up to 50% of that income back into the economy. Um, even just from our participants in our art business conference, we found that almost 30% of participants in four or five art business conferences across the U.S were reinvesting over 50% of their income back into the art business. Yeah, you know, this report has what I think a broad range of potential appeal. So for instance, we're talking about um, the impact on local and regional economies. So that appeals to one particular type of stakeholder, um, not even necessarily in the art industry, but just uh, within the economy itself. Um, and then we have people that are involved in championing the cause of artists, and they may be educators, um, for instance, at you know in an art uh, program or or in a school. Um, and we even found, I think, uh, what was the demand, Lily? The demand for business education was high, and the actual uh, availability of of business education it comprised like something like five percent of of the average art that was you it, know, yeah. art program or art 5%. degree. What was the demand? Uh, I think it was it was well over seventy five percent. It was eighty seven percent of working artists demand business training, right? Yeah. So there's and yet only five percent of an art degree consists of business training, and so you know not prepared. So there's a lot of lessons there for sort of educators, and then you know there are plenty of organizations that sort of champion uh, the work of uh, working artists and are trying to figure out how to do something in our economy precisely to um, inject. Uh, not necessarily an economic result, but to inject uh, a cultural one, more art, uh, because the idea is if you support artists, you get more art uh, in your world. So on the one hand here, there's a model for the middle class artists. We, we've got solid proof now that business education uh, creates changes in attitudes, uh, which ultimately result in business outcomes. But also um, the report supports the impact and efficacy of these types of educational programs to re-inject our world with the creativity that's essential for us to survive as a species on the planet. Um, so, so that is a, a big picture view. And then rather than uh, sort of retrofitting artistic vision into our, our buildings and our schools and our hospitals as a way of injecting art into the culture, we now have an opportunity to, to sort of blend these two concepts of economic and cultural revitalization. So you have the creative class, their jobs are not the jobs that are disappearing. They're not, and they cannot be replaced by automation, uh, acute robotic experiments, you know, with finger painting aside. Um, <laughs> but we have the opportunity uh, for this creative class to, who invent our, our path to prosperity or who can invent it. Um, in a world that we want to inhabit, we have an opportunity for them to sort of lead the way and, and we can rest our cultural legacy squarely on their shoulders, knowing that if we give them the business tools, uh, the confidence, the changes in attitudes, 
the assurance that um, that they can be successful entrepreneurs, that they can carry that precious cargo forward. Um, so I, I find this report um, to have pretty uh, broad appeal. Yeah, and going off of what you said, I just wanted to kind of dive a little deeper. You know, we found that through some of the collated research out there, you know, crime rates go down when people have access to the arts. There's a, a very clear correlation between cultural engagement and community well-being. So aside from an economic standpoint, we also have the cultural aspect that you brought up, which is that, you know, artists inject their work into the world and they, with their contributions to the cultural capital of the world, they're really changing communities on not just a micro level, but also on the larger scale. You know, I, I like that the tone of the report, you know, listening to you, I like the tone that it, it brings also, because I mean, we did include findings uh, that have to do with the level of debt that artists often carry when they're out on their own, the lack of, you know, often they're, they're deeply in debt for financial aid for, for school. Um, they are, uh, it's funny, we call it financial aid. It's almost like financial indebtedness, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're often deeply in debt. Um, and, you know, we also find that they are not being given uh, the tools that treat their work like they are, in fact, self-employed. And yet they are vastly more likely to be self-employed uh, than the general population. Um, to be an artist is, like it or not, essentially to be an entrepreneur in most cases. There are artists who work for corporations. There are artists who land uh, plum and, and cherry gigs uh, doing graphic design, et cetera. But then what about the fine arts? You know, nobody's hiring a, a full-time W-2 <laughs> uh, employee uh, that's a, a, a fine art, an oil painter or a sculptor. Uh, in most cases, you know, uh, there are, yeah. again, positions in movie lots, but not everybody wants to do that. And yet, Lily, it seems like despite all of this, despite um, these things, the report doesn't whine. The report seems to offer us a vision of what is possible what works, what actually creates change. It gives us a sense of aspirational hope. Would, did you find that um, while you were doing the hard science of, you know, collating this data from both external sources and direct sampling of programs we were implementing, that that aspirational tone also affected you or, or stood out for you? Did it give you, did it change you at all in terms of how you viewed uh, working artists before you even touched this project versus now? Definitely. Uh, you know, this report was really, it was an incredible process working on it. But then when we took a step back and looked at the implications, it was really amazing. And I think that you mentioned that huge gap, right, between what artists say they need, what we have shown that artists need in order to run a successful art business as a working artist. There's that gap there. And in that gap is business education. Um, and it's so mind boggling to think that only 5% of, you know, an average sampling of fine arts curriculum involves any sort of entrepreneurial or business education. So this report for me, it, it really was aspirational in that we focused on not that there is that gap. We had to establish that there was the gap, that it exists indeed, in order to say, okay, this is how we can fill the gap. This is how we can create change. And this is how artists are already creating change. And it was really amazing to be able to shed light on, on how that's already happening and the research that shows that it's replicable. Other organizations can do it. 
And the secret sauce is business training. You know, uh, I think the report is a journey, not just tonally and in terms of uh, being an eye opener in, in terms of the, you know, what we started out with and the outcomes we found, which were, uh, even though we expected, we expected to find that uh, business training has some effect, right? But I think uh, you and I were both surprised at the profound level of effect that, that we discovered it has, how documentable it is, how reproducible it is. The report is replicable data over multiple years, multiple cohorts, multiple types and formats of programs. And the, I mean, a 75% increase in uh, the number of people making more money is is a, an immense <laughs> result. I, I did not expect, uh, speaking for myself, to find that that much of a boost. Uh, I figured it would, you know, half, uh, but wow. Uh, but it's also an incredible story for um, the Clark Healings Fund and specifically Elizabeth Healings, who uh, is the front, uh, the leader uh, in, out in front of that fund. Um, here is a woman that set out to honor the legacy of her father, who, uh, you know, Clark Healings is a working artist. He bucked the system. He built an enterprising career on his own terms. He's a, a true artist entrepreneur. And she set out to demonstrate that this is possible for artists in general to do this, to build a self-sustaining art business, to become, instead of the stereotype of the starving artist, the, the middle-class artist, the, the prosperous artist. But the, you know, she insisted they just need a tool set of education and a peer group to participate uh, with in, in, in partaking of that tool set. And she kind of expected it to be, I think, I, you know, I can't speak for her, but I think she expected it to be more widely supported instantly. Uh, and instead, you know, it's often an uphill battle. People will turn away and either pump their money into sort of the arts in general, you know, well, I'll give to the ballet um, and, and sort of uh, in a way deny the vision is feasible or they, um, they sort of shake their heads and say, you know, I, I can't. I can't see it that artists could actually be a prosperous class of people who are high economic contributors. Mm -hmm. uh, or they'll shake their heads and say, artists are not entrepreneurs. We have to sort of go toward pure art where we don't think about the money. And of course, that's a recipe for poverty and starvation for artists. It creates the cliche. And so she, that didn't stop her. So Elizabeth sets out to develop, you know, in my view, one of the best um, arrays of uh, business and entrepreneurial programming uh, for artists that that is intended to impact the lives of those working artists. She recruits a team around her. She engages in this two and a half year work of data science uh, to prove her case, not knowing, you know, there's no way you know when you do that. It's a huge gamble. Most organizations are not saying, show me the impact. And I think it's because maybe uh, people are afraid of what will we find? Will we find that we justify our donors' money? That Will we find that we justify mm -hmm. uh, the programs that we're implementing? Uh, but she took that gamble. She, she stood up and uh, found that not only, uh, you know, and, and she did not drive this. It, it was the data science team independently telling her what the results are. And not only did she find that artists uh, develop self-sustaining careers with the right tools, but um, that we, we can reproduce that in a measurable way as a template for doing anywhere. So it's really a, a human story around this report that impresses me. Uh, and I think potentially could offer inspiration for a lot of working artists. Definitely. And, you know, I think this is really just the tip of the iceberg in research on working artists, because being that we're one of the first organizations and, and data science teams to really dive deeper and find out 
what moves the needle, what artists need to develop sustainable businesses, um, and also really shedding light on the fact that something that we should be investing in art is art, you know, contributing to thriving artists and their work because it really changes the economy. It changes the culture of a city, of a country. Um, and I think that the thing that sticks out to me is that this is a replicable thing. So other organizations might be doing some sort of business programming. Um, and we know that there are some organizations who, besides the Clark Schooling Fund, who are offering different, you know, weekend trainings and, and maybe some online resources. But what we don't have from them is the data to back it up and the information on the participants. And what we have is we've really we've put together something that people can get behind because we have the data to prove that the artists who participate in our learning conferences and in the Art Business Accelerator program are seeing changes. And if you talk to anyone, any of the fellows, I mean, you'll hear the same things that are reflected in the report. It's like, I'm making five times more income than I was, you know, before the program with just a couple of changes in my mindset and my business practices. So it all ties together so beautifully. And I think that having the data to back it up is, you know, step one. Yeah. You know, just to, uh, to back up your point there, I had an artist say to me that uh, my income uh, from my art business has increased every quarter since uh, my relationship with uh, these art business uh, training and, and uh, peer network programs uh, at the Clark Healings Fund. And uh, that person is now in their third year of relationship with us um, and probably uh, will be a long-term permanent relationship. But that, that's extremely common. That's not an outlier. Um, and, you know, some people listening may wonder, uh, Daniel, you're just the host of the, the podcast. What do you have to do with this? I actually serve, uh, as, as you know, Lily, already on the, the data science team as well. So, you know, my role is to sort of uh, guide some of the analytic logic behind the data analysis, um, you know, help shepherd some of the research communications and the, the data collection methodologies. Um, so you, you know, what a lot of people may not know is, is you and I, Lily, this is not our first project. We've done quite a bit of this for other organizations and in academic settings for years. And so um, it isn't, uh, I can say with, with confidence, uh, supporting what you said, it isn't just the numbers, uh, but you know, we're not detached from the human element of the story. We interact with the cohorts of artists who, who are extracting data from and all of that anecdotal data, all of that narrative data goes into the process as well. In fact, maybe you could sort of explain briefly how that works. So when we're not just saying on a scale of one to 10, you know, give us an answer here or show us your, um, you know, your, <laughs> your, your tax return or something like that. But there's, we're analyzing the, the narrative information. How does that work, Lily? Yeah, so at the Clark Schilling Fund, we've been collecting data from our fellows, from participants, from artists who are involved with our work in many different ways. And what we do is we have a whole process behind how we do that, and we make sure that everything is categorized so that we can actually analyze the themes and code for the different themes that come up in what the artists are talking about. So what that looks like is when we have our conferences, we have artists coming up to us, giving us testimonials, talking about the experience, and none of that is lost in translation. Um, we're using everything that we receive from the artists because that's really where it starts with the people. Like you said, this is a human-driven thing. 
the data doesn't come first, it's the people. So, you know, we're, we have, we have the artists and we're doing the data to, you know, further shed light upon what's possible when the community supports artists. Uh, so yeah, that, that process was really interesting too, because we were really able to use these interviews, these one-on-one and group interviews, as well as different testimonials um, and emails we got from artists and really incorporate that into measuring the impact of concentrated business education. Yeah. So I, you know, I am there for a lot of that. And uh, I think the rule that we came up with at the start of the initiative nearly three years ago now was uh, uh, collect everything, even comments that people say, uh, and everything gets categorized and everything gets assigned a number. Yeah. <laughs> and so that we can we can not only listen to it and measure it. And I think one of the, the key things I want to point out there is at the start, you'll remember, Lily, um, when I was interviewing uh, members of the team and so on, we, we our standard was we shall not create research that merely substantiates the result that we want to have. <laughs> but instead, we will go with uh, whatever the, the data tells us and whatever the artists are actually telling us. Uh, we will collate that. And that stuff will tell us how to shape programs and also reinform how we do the data science, what, what we measure, what questions need to be asked that we fail to ask. But the artists are telling us this is important and that's important. So it's really been kind of a, a symbiotic relationship based on the need for integrity in the data. It isn't um, what I would call the typical sort of report that says, you know, our programs support us. Here's some stats on how much money we spent, and how many people were served. But it goes way beyond that to where the people being served are saying, here's the result I got um, from what you did for me. Um, and in, in some cases, the, you know, some of the numbers are down in the, you know, the 20 percentile. And we're like, OK, that's cool. We want to move that needle more. But at least we know we get a 20 percent result when we do this. Other numbers are up in the 87 percentile. And we're like, wow, that's more than we ever hoped we could get. So uh, the process has a lot of integrity. It's intensely human. Uh, and it's reinformed by the cohort of people that we're doing the research for. And I, I want to say one other thing about that um, as we kind of wind down uh, the episode, which is that, um, you know, we didn't emphasize yet that the sheer need that artists have to participate not only in the design of the educational programs that they are partaking of and the running of their own businesses, but they, they have an intense need to participate with each other in professional peer networks, the same way that lawyers and real estate agents and doctors have peer networks that work for them. Uh, and so we found uh, almost 70% of uh, the artists that we sampled across multiple cohorts said uh, that they felt an, an intense need for uh, artist peer networks. And yet uh, we found almost a third uh, during an average week didn't attend a single art event uh, <laughs> didn't, mm -hmm. you know, they're not getting out there. They're not having the experience. And so Lily, what I found is by creating an educational program that also introduced the opportunity of not sort of helicoptering in training and then leaving, but the opportunity for an ongoing exchange with not only working artists, but other people within their industry, collectors, gallerists, museum curators, arts, uh, nonprofit leaders, government leaders, uh, that that aspect of things uh, came directly out of listening to what the artists were saying 
and then an intense desire to measure what would happen uh, if we if we honored the request. <laughs> yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that whole ecosystem that you just mentioned of like gallerists, artists, the whole peer network contributes so heavily to business results and the success that artists see in their in their lives and in their businesses. And, you know, a, a couple other studies out there had mentioned that artists were likely to credit their relationships and support network um, as top factors in contributing to their financial stability, which contributes and allows them to continue on with their art business. And I think it's really important to note that that gap in the desire to attend events with other artists and, and create these peer networks and the availability is huge. So I think that's, that's a big area that we need to look at and really dive deeper on. Like I said, we're just at the beginning of this research, but I think that artists really need those peer networks. And there's a reason why they're not attending the events. So either they're not finding them useful, but what, what I think is more striking is that there really aren't enough art business events out there. And there really aren't enough groups for artists that foster communication around what it's like to be in an art business and, you know, just topics that are relevant for them. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, please be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. For more information on the report on the working artist, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash R-O-W-A. That's clarkhewlingsfund.org slash R-O-W-A. To sponsor this podcast, if you're finding it valuable, this kind of research we're talking about, and CHF's pivotal learning programs for working artists, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Lily. It's been really great having you on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Two.